This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker is Joe Henrich, who unfortunately couldn't join us. I'm happy to say that he was able to record his talk. It's a very important talk on a second mode of inheritance that doesn't involve DNA, but culture, and it interacts with the first mode of inheritance. So here's Joe Henrich from Harvard University on cultural evolution. Hi, everyone. I'm Joe Henrich. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you today, but in the next 14 minutes, I'll be giving you an introduction to recent developments in our understanding of cultural evolution and dual inheritance theory with an eye to how this informs our understanding of human evolution. Our point of entry for understanding cultural evolution and our species dual inheritance is to recognize that humans are a cultural species. More than any other species, we're dependent for our very survival on acquiring this large body of information that is accumulated non-genetically over generations. We use this to find food, to process it, to make tools necessary for getting the food, for building shelters, for medicines, for even features of childbirth that other species do automatically. Humans need uh, specialized cultural information. So culture is central to understanding humans and we can't survive without it, despite having these large brains that have evolved surviving as hunter-gatherers for so long. Now to approach this, we need to think about our adaptations for cultural learning as genetically evolved adaptations. Natural selection has shaped our minds to make us better cultural learners. This, I think, is a crucial intellectual move in history, these ideas, because making this move dissolves the intellectually destructive dichotomy between genes and culture, and it allows us to make all cultural evolution a type of evolutionary explanation, to insert them under the Darwinian umbrella and to use the full power of evolutionary theory to think about our cultural capacities as genetic adaptations. Now, the way to build an understanding of cultural evolution and dual inheritance is to begin by asking the question, how might natural selection have shaped our cognition to best exploit the socially available information that's in the minds and behaviors of the other members of our social group? How do we filter that wash of social information? And there's a large body of formal evolutionary mathematical theory that asks the question, when should we rely on pre-programmed responses innate decision-making heuristics, individual learning and experience, or cultural learning or learning from others. And to give you a sense of how we think about this, you can imagine you're entering a novel environment. Perhaps you're a young individual just growing up in the group, learning to make your way in the world, or perhaps you're a migrant from a different environment. And you have to solve a basic task. How do you figure out what to eat in this environment? Now, you might use individual innate learning cues um, sampling a lot of foods, trying to figure out what to eat. This would allow you to construct a good diet over time, but it would be costly because you'd have to sample all these foods. You'd have to have some good detoxifying processes. You might make yourself a little bit sick sometimes. Um, so that's potentially costly. The cultural learning solution to this problem is to eat what other people eat. And you can even sharpen that up a bit by focusing on the food choices of older, healthier, and more successful people. You don't know that this will give you the best possible diet in this environment, but you do know that it will give you a diet that can allow you to become older, healthier, and successful. 
Now, researchers in approaching this have uh, identified a number of different classes of mechanisms. I'll mention two of them. The first is model-based mechanisms, and that's rooted on who you're trying to learn from. So that's relevant to the last thing I said about older, healthier, and more successful people learning to eat from them. So that's about the who. I'll say more about that in a minute. The other one are content-based mechanisms. So selection seems to have favored some inclination to pay attention to certain domains. So people are particularly interested in food, you know that from all the cooking shows. Fire, there seems to be a period during middle childhood when children become particularly interested in fire. Artifacts, we seem to approach them in, a certain way, in certain ways and, and make certain assumptions about what one needs to know about artifacts. Social norms, we're inclined to learn social rules. I'll say more about that in a few minutes. We focus on social groups and we try to learn things about whole categories of people. And living kinds, we seem to have some specialized cognition for dividing up the natural world. And in fact, we focus on certain kinds of information. So children readily acquire and remember information about the dangerousness of different species. To give you a sense of how researchers have approached this, let me talk about model-based selective cultural learning. So here the idea is to build a theory to um, allow us to investigate the kinds of cues learners use to figure out who in their social environment to pay attention to. Some obvious ones are pay attention to the more skilled or competent individual. So if you're in a hunting and gathering band, you want to look at the best archer if you want to become a good hunter someday, or the, the person who makes the best snares. Um, a way of aggregating this is to look at the most successful people, so who, bring, who brings back the most prey consistently. A way to get to that quickly could be to use prestige cues. So rather than aggregating who brings back the most prey most frequently, you can look at who other people pay attention to. Who do they imitate? Who do they defer to in conversation about hunting? So these are skill, success, and prestige biases, all of which have been shown not only in adults, but in young children, and in some ways, things like reliability and competence have been shown in babies. Young children, there's, there's good evidence of prestige bias. Other cues could be something like age, which allows you to very quickly zoom in on uh, individuals likely to have useful information by using age as a proxy. Younger children copy older children, and only certain people get to be old. So especially in small-scale societies, that can be a cue. Self-similarity cues can help individuals zero in on those most likely to have information useful to your future roles in life. Research on social learning has shown that these cues, in general, not each one, are operative across a wide range of domains. So people use social learning to acquire food preferences, to pick mates, to determine which technologies they're going to adopt, economic strategies, suicide, reputational information is transmitted culturally, and what goes into a reputation in particular. Social motivations like fairness and punishment are also well established to be culturally transmitted. These biases and inclinations uh, reliably develop. We have uh, cross-cultural evidence, including some from small-scale societies, although we could use a lot more of detailed experimental evidence. But they develop early, they're automatic, and they're often unconscious. So this has the look of a cognitive adaptation. The next step in this process is to think about cultural evolution. So we've used the logic of natural selection to get us an understanding of the psychological mechanisms which allow us to acquire cultural learning. So next you can build mathematical models which describe social processes of interaction between people, some learning and some payoffs, some social interaction. 
that help us explain aspects of religion, help us explain why some aspects of religion seem to be universally shared, and why we have this historical trajectory and beliefs in, say, big moralizing gods or the, for these large doctrinal rituals. It can help us understand why technologies can become so sophisticated and why larger and more integrated societies tend to produce faster adaptive rates of cumulative cultural evolution, leading to fancier technologies and larger technical repertoires. It, it can explain why languages are so variable. Similarly, large societies have uh, more words, for example, um, particular kinds of grammatical systems. On the next slide, I'll discuss social norms and cooperation a bit more, and this approach can help us understand why ethnic groups seem to be so widespread in the world, and what's the nature of our ethnic psychology. Which brings us to the large pink arrow, which is reminding us that these cultural products, having operated over tens or even hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, have fed back to shape our genetic evolution, so we're a product of this gene culture co-evolution. From this broad range of topics on cultural evolution, I've picked out just one, the evolution of cooperation, or what Pete Richardson calls human ultrasociality. Now, there's been a great deal of work on human cooperation showing the role of kinship and reciprocity. But in addition to this, efforts to understand large-scale cooperation have shown the centrality of social norms, and subsequent investigations to better understand kinship and reciprocity has shown that even in that domain, or even where those mechanisms are involved, social norms are crucial. There's now a large body of psychological work showing that um, based on humans from diverse societies, that humans culturally learn norms, social norms seem to be a universal. When humans acquire norms, they acquire internalized motivations, they automatically infer expectations of punishment or some kind of sanctioning based on reputations, and they acquire standards for judging others, all by simple observation. So it seems that humans have some kind of norm psychology. Social norms are stable because anybody who acts faces a threat of punishment by others, and so that keeps the whole group in line. This is why things like economic development, other kinds of social change are so hard. One of the interesting and emerging areas is what are the different mechanisms that maintain norms across societies. It had been assumed that the debate was about one kind of mechanism, but it turns out that cultural evolution has figured out lots of ways to maintain social norms. So these vary both across societies and even in different domains within the society. One of the important areas moving forward is considering how the emergence of social norms through cultural evolution has shaped our species' genetic evolution and our sociality. So one idea is that the threat of reputational damage and other kinds of costly punishment to norm violators has initiated a process of self-domestication. So this suggests that there's a syndrome that we share with other species like domesticated dogs, um, whereby selection favors certain genes and their downstream hormonal and psychological effects that create a domestication-like effect. We have many of these, but not all of these when you compare us with other species. One of the key elements is this is what Richard Rangham calls reduced reactive aggression, a kind of general docility. This would also favor the kind of norm psychology I discussed on the previous slide, this readiness to acquire and internalize social rules. It may even lead to pro-social biases, uh, these biases that we get to acquiring pro-social norms, which would have resulted because of the effects of intergroup competition, favoring more group beneficial norms. Only complex tools and technologies over time. So that's the crossing of the Rubicon. You get some cultural evolution going. Culture begins to become a semi-independent inheritance system alongside genetic evolution. 
Early cultural evolution may have produced things like stone tools for cutting and processing food. Fire and cooking may have created a kind of externalized digestion, which weakened the selection pressures, allowing our stomachs to shrink, um, changing other aspects of our physiology. This would have freed up more energy to build larger brains, giving us greater dexterity uh, for using tools and making tools. This then would have created a greater selection pressure for brains able to acquire, organize, store, and retransmit cultural information, because that's the name of the game. Cultural evolution then could have produced more knowledge about um, throwing techniques, uh, about uh, how to find tubers, about how to make water containers. Water containers would have opened the door for long distance running, which would have created genetic selection pressures for our springy arches, our long legs. Um, Eventually, we might have gotten shortened colons, having to do with the fire and cooking I mentioned, and even larger brains, because now there's this growing body of valuable behavioral information that's only available if you're a good cultural learner, and you've got to acquire it and store it, and eventually retransmit it. You get uh, cold weather clothing, uh, better tools allow us to have thinner bones and weaker muscles, because we're relying more on technology. Things like resins and other kinds of projectiles can emerge. And then eventually a cognition that allows us to acquire and store all this knowledge about different kinds of plants and animals because we're now in the cognitive niche or the cultural niche uh, and minds that are better able to acquire information about artifacts. Uh, and eventually this can affect human life history, giving us an extended juvenile period, a longer post-reproductive period, because as you extend life, older individuals have an opportunity to retransmit back to younger generations this large body of information they've accumulated over time. All right, that's it. Um, if you wanted to learn more about some of the ideas I presented here, you can have a look at my book, The Secret of Our Success. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.